This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. From Christianity Today, I'm Sandra McCracken, and this is The Slow Work. We are all creatives at heart, no matter what career or calling we find ourselves in. Inspiration can happen in a second, but the work of creativity only happens when we're patient enough to stay with it. It takes grit to see it through. I love hearing what this looks like for musicians, poets, painters, writers, and advocates. So I've been talking to them, and I want to invite you to listen in. As you do, I hope that your faith story gets tangled up in your work story and that your creative mind would be renewed by hope and possibility. Thanks for listening. Hello, friends. Welcome to the last episode of this season of The Slow Work. I'm Azure, producer of the show, and whether you've been with us along the way or this is your first time listening in, let me say thanks for being here. On behalf of Sandra and the whole Slow Work team, we appreciate you spending your time with us. In this episode, Sandra speaks with bassist and composer John Patitucci. John is a legend in the jazz world, having enjoyed long tenures with Chick Corea and Wayne Shorter, as well as appearing on hundreds of records. As a leader and composer, he's released over a dozen records of his own, several of which have come out under his own label that he founded with his wife, manager, and musical collaborator, Sachi. You'll hear Sandra and John discuss how he got his start in music, his faith, and how that influences everything he does artistically, how music has helped him process loss and grief, as well as their collaboration on Sandra's album, Light in the Canyon. Hey, John, thank you so much for joining on The Slow Work. We're so glad to have you here today across the miles. That's great to be here and uh, great to see you been a while. You too. Yeah. Last time I saw you in person was just coming out of crazy pandemic year at Laity Lodge um, to work on that project together. So yeah, that was special. And we've actually been trying to get this together for a little while, but I have been following your work for a long time, even before that project. Of course, I, I have this secret love for the bass. I just wish I had learned to play the bass first. I just love the instrument. Oh, never too late. <laughs> <laughs> never too late. I mean, I can I can play like an A scale right now and that's about it. But um, was this your first instrument? You started really early with bass? Well, first real thing, like my brother, he is responsible for me starting to play. He started playing guitar when we were kids in Brooklyn and he's three years older than I am. So he was taken from a guitar teacher in Brooklyn who was making him learn how to read. I was about eight. Mm -hmm. I was precocious. I had a pretty good ear, but I didn't want to learn how to read. They put a guitar in my hand with the pick, I'm lefty. And we were all mm -hmm. playing righty in those days because only Hendrix and Paul McCartney had lefty. <laughs> so I didn't even think that you could play lefty. And I'm glad I didn't actually. It worked out well for me, but I tried to play the guitar. The pick in my right hand felt very uncomfortable. And my brother saw that I was it wasn't going to happen because the guy was making us read out of those Mel Bay guitar books. And I was oh, yeah. having it. I, I was so young and I didn't have the attention span. So he figured it out. He said, you know what? You should play the bass and we could play together. And there was a bass on somebody's wall. It was a horrible Sears Telstar 
short scale bass that buzzed on every fret. And it, <laughs> we got it for 10 bucks, literally. And um, I, he said, you could use your fingers now. You don't have to use a pick. I was like, wow. Hmm. I started playing and I fell in love immediately. And on the radio at that time, I was hearing James Jamerson, who wasn't getting credit. We didn't even know his name on all hmm. those Stevie Wonder records, Supremes, Marvin Gaye record, whatever was on the radio in New York, all the R&B stuff was incredible. Mm. The bass was mixed really in your face. And I heard all that stuff. And it, I, the two songs <laughs> that made me want to really play the bass were I Was Made to Love Her and For Once in My Life, both Stevie Wonder hits in the 60s. Oh, yeah. man, that, that's amazing. I mean, it taps in on every level because you're learning, you are absorbing like a sponge. I mean, the closest thing I can compare that to in my own life is learning to drive a stick shift with a bad transmission. If you got a bass that buzzes on every fret yeah, yeah. and then you're like trying, yeah. you're trying to get up a hill with a transmission that keeps like dropping. And then you think, okay, if I can just get up this, this next little right. <laughs> interval. Right. So you didn't start out with jazz necessarily. You no. just, you just dropped in with what was on the radio in, in Brooklyn. But because I was in New York, my grandfather, who worked, you know, with a jackhammer on Rhodes, my mother's side, he had a good ear. He was the one who got the first guitar from my brother. He liked music. Wow. And his father had a speakeasy in Brooklyn during Prohibition. So he heard stride piano. So he was the way jazz entered wow. our lives. All of a sudden, mm -hmm. one day, he came over with a box of records. And it was like... West Montgomery, Art Blakey, and all these things, and Jimmy Smith. I was still around eight, nine, and we freaked out. We really didn't understand it, but the West Montgomery wow. records, which are coming out of a blues kind of a thing too, really touched us. And my brother being a guitar player, he freaked out of a West Montgomery, and I did too. So that's when we mm -hmm. first started hearing jazz. So it was pretty around the same time, really. Mm -hmm. So music was part of your family experience, it sounds like, both playing with your brother yeah. and listening together. And and then playing music, did you get serious about it pretty fast in terms of studying it? Yeah, I really wanted to play. Then we moved out to Long Island. I must have been about 10. And I, we went to finally went to a school that had an actual program for music. I think it was in the middle mm -hmm. of sixth grade we moved to the island which was a mm. big deal. Nobody had moved out there yet. In our family, everybody was in Brooklyn. Tons of people were, you know, within walking distance of each other. So we went out there mm. and uh, there was a program and I took snare drum and I was, I wanted to play the drums. And my dad said, forget that. There's no way we're having drums in the house. <laughs> so I was kind of bummed out, but I kept going with the bass because I loved it. Uh, then we moved to California. Soon after that, about a year and a half later, I was about 13 and I met this mentor in California who made me learn how to read music and also introduced me to more records and eventually, you know, got me interested in playing the acoustic bass. There was a bass in the band room when I was 15 at my high school. And that's, oh, that's wow. what started the acoustic bass. Acoustic bass is one of my favorites, and you're playing of Gridlock. Um, I guess you're, is that your attic studio? That, no, that's, that's, a, home that's studio? a friend of mine's who lives in my neighborhood here out, out in Hastings. He is a great guy, and I got to know him just this year, really. We've been working on stuff together, and he's a wizard of YouTube. So he he helped me, you know, get my YouTube page really in order and all these things. Mm -hmm. So we did that in, at, at his studio. Yeah, you can hear the sound and the purity of just one, how much that 
acoustic bass can do. Well, I mean, it could. <laughs> if I were holding it, it couldn't. But while you're holding that bass and you hear the melody and it's a whole orchestra oh, in thank one. You. That's a special bass, though. That's the bass that I always dreamed that maybe I could have. And I mm -hmm. gave up on the dream of having an old Italian bass. That's an old Galliano wow. from 1850 or something like that. And it belonged to an amazing jazz musician named Art Davis who played with Coltrane. Oh, my goodness. And so when he died, my mentor, the guy from California, his name is Chris Poehler, he um, bought the instruments that his sons were selling. Because after Art died, his son sold the instruments. And that was one of those huge God things where he kept saying, oh, you should be playing this bass. You need to be playing this as part of history. And I was like, yeah, great. I got daughters. I'm trying to pay for college. And what are you talking about? <laughs> and he said, give me a little money down and you can pay me a car payment basically for the rest of my life. Oh, yeah. Every month. But it's worth it. That bass needs to be played. Basses are like people. They they go back into their yeah. shell if, unless you play them. They close up. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's something in the wood and the, the way it's made and all the history of what it holds? Oh yeah, half of my family's from Naples. That base was made in Naples and the Galliano family, they were many generations of luthiers. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting that it would be from there. And also that base looks really soulful. It's, it's not as... Um, it's not as glamorous as some of the northern Italian bases from Brescia that are very fancy looking. This one, it's almost like, yeah, we found this wood and we made a base out of it. Like it was kind of rustic looking. To me, it's very beautiful, but it's not fancy in the way some of the the, the instruments from the yeah. north are. Yeah. It, you know, I've heard stories of people that go in and want to buy a Steinway and they go in and they try all the different pianos. And uh, my husband, Tim, and I both, we've done that just for fun. Just go through and see which instrument sounds a certain way and to play them. And it is remarkable. I I remember playing a friend's piano when we recorded an album called Psalms. It was actually in, you know, their apartment in Brooklyn. And it was a Schimmel. And I didn't know the brand. I didn't know anything about the Schimmel. But I do really feel like there was a some kind of an attachment to that, the warmth of it mm -hmm. and just the way that piano spoke and... I think that was maybe the first experience I'd had playing on something that was like a top-notch instrument, but also felt a connection to it. There was a book I read about a luthier recently that actually Mako Fujimura recommended to me mm. this one about like the sound and the way that these trees are made. And it's it's just inherently kind of devotional when you think yeah. about how uh, the life that goes into that tree before it even becomes the instrument. Wow. Yeah. and 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 the fact that all those instruments outlive us. This yeah. instrument's from the 1800s. It's beautiful and it's very rich. It was also made by hands that were gifted from God. Like some, mm -hmm. you don't become a luthier like that mm. by accident. There were two brothers that worked on my instrument, and they were maybe grandsons of the original Galliano. And so wow. it's like a mm -hmm. thing that's passed down. And you talk about slow work. I mean, that's the yeah. slow evolution of generations of making instruments. It, it has to be, I guess, taught in a very human way. Like you, you couldn't just put that in a book and learn it at, at a university about how to, how to make an instrument that way. You have to make mistakes. 
a, lo a lot of them <laughs> along the way to get that good. When did you start songwriting? I'm curious if there's like an instrument that you go to first when you're songwriting or composing music. I think I wrote a blues when I was about 12 or 13 and I wrote it on the electric bass. And I think mm -hmm. I might have, I even wrote it on that. Maybe I still had that funky bass. And then I got my first, <laughs> I got my first Fender when I was maybe 13, 14. I got a Fender Mustang mm -hmm. and I just had it refinished. It's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's like red with a white racing stripe from 1972. You know? <laughs> it's great. And so that was my first instrument. So I wrote the blues on either the Telstar or the Mustang. And that's what you were playing at the time. Yeah. Most That was you were most comfortable with. Yeah, that was the only, like, I mean, you know, I, in those, this was long before <laughs> I was one of those guys who had all kind of electric basses and all that. Yeah. Then, you know, my brother got a degree in classical guitar from college. So when he was going to Cal State Hayward, which was a state school, he, he started taking class piano at college, so they needed to get something to mm -hmm. practice on. So they got a cheap mm -hmm. little Cheney spinet piano, which was really funky. Mm -hmm. And I started writing music because it was a jazz piano player who showed me some voicings. And so in high school, I started playing the piano just mm -hmm. from what he showed me. And I didn't have any training yet until college. I had some class piano and all that, but I just knew some voicings and I started to listen and pick things out on the piano and I started to write on the piano. I always used mm -hmm. my voice as well because I grew up singing. Everybody sang mm -hmm. in our house. And to this day, really, I'll either sing a groove or a melody or I'll sit at the piano or sometimes the bass is the, the vehicle or sometimes it's a drum mm -hmm. groove. So I employ all those things. And along the way, over the years, I learned how to do orchestration. So I I'm writing for strings a lot of times, maybe I'll have a, a germ on the piano and then I'll go into finale and start orchestrating. And hmm. uh, I love to write for the strings and the woodwinds. And Did the orchestration arranging part come by way of working on films or was that something that just kind of was part of your, you were exposed to that with your training? When I started getting into classical mu music a little bit in high school, I started wanting to write bigger things. Because in college, I also, I only went three years of college and I was a classical bass major. That's all they would let you do at colleges mm -hmm. that we could afford. You know, there was no sending me to Berkeley or Juilliard or whatever. I, then I played in the orchestra and we played Beethoven's music. We played Berlioz. Mm -hmm. We played Mozart's music. Then I was like, whoa, this is. So, Hearing all the counterpoint yeah. and all the things going on. So yeah. I never really studied orchestration at all. In college, the two courses that I think set me on a path were the first theory class when you do four-part writing and you you analyze Bach chorales and, and you learn how to write yeah. four parts. That was yeah. huge because that helps you really figure some stuff out. And then the second one was the counterpoint class where we analyzed Bach's two-part inventions. So basically, it's interesting that Bach wrote every note for the glory of God, and he was my biggest influence you know, in terms of how I thought about writing music and the way music is put together.
This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. That's such a profound experience, and I, I can relate to that, and I think about that with your playing, and I mean, you just did a new project with Brian Blade. He's another one that I feel like exudes this deep spirituality when he plays, right? Well, There's just like, is. right? <laughs> and you're the, you're the same, and I and you, you say that about Bach, and I think like, how is it that you begin to, to hear the implications of someone's faith in how they're playing and giving voice to what they hear musically as well? Even before, I mean, I didn't really become a Christian for real until I was 17. I was raised in the Catholic Church, and um, I was an altar boy and the whole thing. And when I was really young, I thought I would mm. be a priest. And then they started telling me what the rules were. And I said, okay, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and, um, and, <laughs> uh, because I wanted to have a family, you know, even at a young age, you know, yeah. I, I wanted to have a family. And um, so much so that I sort of tried to rush that thing. And I got married when I was 24. And didn't work out so well. Um, it, and I stuck in there for nine and a half years because of my faith, but it never worked. Mm. And then the person left and that was the end of that. But I say I was trying to outrun God's plan for my life. And I can mm. run fast, but not that fast. Mm. <laughs> Nobody runs that fast. <laughs> so um, I messed up. And uh, then I, 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 God was gracious and I met Sachi. And we've been married for 28 years. We have two daughters. Mm. One of them just graduated from Tulane. Congratulations. My older daughter is a singer-songwriter in L.A. Her mm. name is Sachi Grace. Sachi Sato, she goes by now. She took my mother-in-law's uh, maiden name. So were you still in California when you were converted? At, or yes. You began to, yeah. That was, was I that was in, in Northern California. When we were 15 and my brother was 18, we both left the, the Catholic Church. We, went, we just came mm. to our parents and said, we're not going anymore. I had gone in and asked the priest some questions. I, I wanted to be close to God and I felt like he was far away and I wanted the priest to tell me and he couldn't tell me. He just said, mm. and I'm not slamming all Catholics. I'm just saying this particular priest didn't know how to tell somebody the gospel. So he just said, go in the church and say five Hail Marys and some Our Fathers and think about what it means to be a good Catholic. I had to go in the confessional to talk to him. Mm. So I'm in the dark confessional. And they go through, you know, bless me, Father, I have sinned and blah, 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 and all the rigmarole. Mm -hmm. And it didn't, he didn't give me any answers. Because of the school district I was in, the teachers had a, a, a big band, a night band that would meet <laughs> once a week. They didn't like the bass player, so they drafted me. I was a kid, <laughs> but I was playing in the teacher's night band. In the night band, there was a guy playing piano named Jonathan Brown. He was kind of a blue-eyed soul singer. He was the music minister at a hillside covenant in Walnut Creek. Mm -hmm. And the, the youth pastor at the time was a guy named Lon Allison, who they had a little group and they were doing ministry and they started hiring me at their church. And they would have those, you're probably familiar with these. It was almost like a musical and, you know, the music was one thing and then people would give their testimonies. And so they hired me. I was playing, you know, 
Yeah. And I noticed yeah. I was at the Hillside Covenant. There were a lot of young people running around. They were all happy. They were in youth groups and kind of like, wow, yeah. these people know something that I don't know. I've never been happy at church. These guys um, started to really show me a lot of love and encouragement. I think they sensed that I was seeking and I started asking them the same questions that I had before and they had answers. Hmm. They took me to the Bible. They said, they talked to me about grace, which I had never heard that before. Um, hmm. That Jesus was, his love was so big that it could, you know, pay for all the, the wrong things that I would had done or whatever even think of doing. And that there was such a thing as grace and mercy and salvation hinged on that, not on hmm. condemnation and, and, um, being sent to hell at the drop of a hat. It was amazing to me. And I, I said, yes, in August of 1977. In fact, the funny thing is there's a picture of me playing with them at the Conquer Pavilion. It was like a Christian concert day. It was called the Day in the Sun, S-O-N, mm -hmm. right? August 1977, that very day. It's kind of funny. It's a picture of me in a um, sort of a corduroy suit with my <laughs> sitting on a stool with a big acoustic 360 amp behind me that wasn't mine, <laughs> and and the mustang bass and i'm playing with them and that very day i went home and uh accepted the lord yeah. they have been talking to me for a while and then after that yeah. shortly after that they started this church called hope center which my brother was a pastor at for years in in pleasant hill something that stays with me about that story is is the way you are invited in and people didn't put qualifiers on you to come in and play bass. You know, yeah, yeah. you were invited in to just be part. And so many times I think we think so hard about that within the church or within music and just think like, oh, I don't know. Well, what if we don't know where everybody's coming from when they're playing in the church band? And it's like, well, maybe that's okay. You well, know, maybe this is part of the story. Well, yeah. I mean, and I'm an elder at my church now. We have people who are not believers playing mm -hmm. drums and bass in, in our bands because yeah. I'm the first one to say, well, that's how God chose to yeah. bring me. I, I would love it if other people had that opportunity. I think mm -hmm. Tim Keller, who just passed, uh, who was somebody that I worked with a bit, their first plant outside of Manhattan was this mm -hmm. church called Trinity in Rye, a Trinity mm -hmm. Press. And that was the church that when we first moved back here, we wound up getting yeah. involved in. We had gone to, into the city to hear Keller because some people told us about him who were musicians that worked there. He was quoted as saying, you know, we have a problem now in the kind of people we attract at our churches because many churches attract legalistic people who are very tightly wound, who are not mm -hmm. very graceful or loving. That's the exact mm -hmm. opposite of Jesus, who was a radical, who went mm -hmm. in, in search of every person on this planet. So that's an issue. We did some fun things together, Tim and I. And, and I, I, he was a, a hero, became a hero. I started reading all his books and I heard him preach mm -hmm. Redeemer. And then they planted the church that we went to in Rye with a pastor named Craig Higgins, really nice man. We did these forums at, at Redeemer the first one we did was massive. It was with Brian and John Coward and Joel Funk, oh. the saxophone. We did the spiritual music of John Coltrane. And, oh, wow. and I got to stand on a stage and and speak with Tim Keller to people. He asked mm -hmm. me questions and we talked about a, a lot about train, but also about what it means to try to be an artist and a musician and develop mm -hmm. your gift, you know, the responsibility that God gave you when he gave it to you. But 
not allow it to be a huge idol and sit on the throne in your life and that tension. And, you know, so here I am, like, it's kind of like playing with one of my musical heroes, standing there with Mm. him. He was one of my heroes. I used to call him the Coltrane of Preachers (laughs) because he was. He had virtuosity in the way he could communicate, mm-hmm. but he could also play very directly, a very straightforward, like the way Coltrane played mm-hmm. a ballad, a beautiful, mm-hmm. playing one note or eight million and still destroying you emotionally, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Tim had that. Such a legacy. We miss him already. I feel like as you're telling me that story, I just am thinking about how I was living in St. Louis when I first heard his preaching kind of by some tape or recording or something and then had friends that went to New York for college. And so after I moved to Nashville and then had friends up in New York and got to hear him and was just so influenced. But that that hospitality, that straightforward pull up a chair kind of hospitality combined with he didn't shy away from telling the truth. So no. he, he didn't just like flatter people to bring him in. It was just a, hey, if you tell the truth of the gospel, it will be compelling. And he, he gave his life to that. He gave his preaching and his ministry and church planting and has been such an influence on me as well. It's, um, it will, you know, that will continue. I think those seeds will continue to grow. I still think grow. about it. There was one other thing that we did. He invited Monty Alexander, who's a great jazz pianist, and I to come because Monty's a believer. His sermon that night was incredible. It was called The Greatest Improvisation in the History of the Universe. And the greatest improvisation in the history of the universe, he was saying, was the incarnation of Christ come <laughs> as, a, as a baby. That was the most unbelievable. Nobody <laughs> could improvise like no, God, obviously. Nobody but, uh, saw that coming. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, he had that ability to um, be a virtuoso at what he did, but communicate directly to anybody Hmm. he could break it down he wasn't talking down to people ever by breaking it down Mm -hmm. he -hmm. was able to do both to reach Mm -hmm. somebody in their heart and also a challenge an intellectual yeah yeah the parallel even with as an illustration of jazz and what it is to improvise is such a strong one because i think a lot of people are intimidated by the idea of jazz music but when you're up close to it and it's great and there's all this interplay that's going on, it really does kind of draw you in, in the same way that you're describing. Like that's what the gospel does in its best form is like draw you into these, just one surprise after another. I mean, the fact that we do confession every week at church is because I need to constantly be surprised. Like, Ooh, I am drawn back to tonic to what is right and whatever I've whichever way I've gone left or right or (laughs) variations I've made like I keep coming back to finding that tonality of the gospel and it should be something that brings delight and that brings freedom and that brings like what I've seen on you know your live performances and just this sense of like okay we're kind of levitating now (laughs) we've gotten into the joy space of music and I think the Christian life should be that way too in its in its true form. You know, we lost Wayne Shorter mm-hmm. earlier this year and he was like a second father to me and the quartet we had with Danilo Perez, mm-hmm. Brian Blade and Wayne for 20 years. And there were times on that, Brian and I talk about it too, where we really felt just the Holy Spirit falling, you know, things were happening in the music that, that were like, obviously. Mm-hmm. That's the yeah. thing about jazz when it's right, whether people know it or not. 
it's coming from a much higher place. And in all music, really, when there's that kind of communion of the people sharing it and the vulnerability to experience it, if people are open and really thinking outwardly about sort of setting the table for the person next to them to fly, that's my mindset, whether I'm playing in a highly improvised jazz setting or when we're, whether we're playing songs or whether mm. you know people are singing and delivering a certain message, mm -hmm. which is a very direct way of doing it. Yeah. The bass is incredible for that because to the epicenter of things, Mm -hmm. Our job is to set the table, but also we have a lot of responsibility and sort of causation about what happens in the music. Because if we change a groove or a note, it sort of tilts mm -hmm. things in a different way, the drums and the bass kind of. Yeah. So we have this mandate really to be very vulnerable and in the moment and present, which is also the way we're supposed to be in our spiritual life. So it's interesting how it all kind of comes together. Mm -hmm. When you feel those things happen that are mystically wow how did that happen we just did that together obviously mm -hmm. you'd have to be arrogant to think it was just you or me doing that This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. As a producer and as a collaborator, how do you help everyone bring their voice out? How do you make it like a shared space? I think that's one of the great responsibilities and opportunity of being on the bottom of the music and looking up like through a prism <laughs> or a kaleidoscope and seeing all that's happening is because Amazing. you can really, if the, the bass player and the drums have a rapport and really have that sensitivity and vulnerability, they can create an atmosphere for the chordal instruments to feel really secure and relaxed and place in their stuff. And then there's a singer or a horn or a guitarist who ha is delivering a melody, it's just mm -hmm. like sitting in an easy chair then. It's very 
comfortable. <laughs> they, they should be able to phrase back, forward, sideways. They should have yeah. the freedom to deliver that melody or that message or that story. Mm. That's powerful. You know, I'm always going for that. And like when we worked with you and John mm. and, and James, James and I had never mm -hmm. played together and mm -hmm. it felt really good. He was very open. I always tell my students, my first focus point, the first thing I have to do is make sure the drummer and I are, are really mm -hmm. tight and together mm -hmm. and feeling everything together. Because if we get that right, then everybody else is going to flourish. If that doesn't <laughs> happen, we're already done. It's not yeah. going to work. So that was impressed upon me somehow by older musicians, or mm -hmm. if you really desire to be a developed bass player, you have to have that desire to sort of set the table and make, allow things to happen for people. That's it right there. I even t tell my students, when you first start playing with someone, you stare a hole through the drummer and uh -huh. watch how they physically <laughs> express the beat. Watch their wow. body do what they do. And you can find where to sit with that and really find them, agree where they are. And then you can, too, you can decide whether things float or, or, or they just stay locked in a certain place. Then for you to deliver your message, yeah. hopefully that makes it more comfortable and then you feel freedom. Absolutely. I, I was smiling so much that day when we were recording those songs for Light in the Canyon. And I think the image of the easy chair, it, it makes me laugh because that's very much how I felt. It felt like I could just settle into the space that you all were creating as a band. And it also was, it was really interesting to look back at those recordings, a couple of those songs that I had recorded at other times with different musicians and to realize there was a completely new spirit about them. Each time I think you have a chemistry of people that are playing together, it's a Absolutely. unique thing. And then also like the moment that you're in, you know, we were... That was just after COVID. We were all, this was the first time I'd been out to do anything together with people yeah. in a room. And that was really joyful. And you think, oh, I've just missed playing together, right. let alone being able to do so with such ease. And then there were things that as I heard the recordings back, there's just like joy and just a new take on an old song in a lot of ways. Which... Well, it was fun. I have to say a lot of fun. And, and yeah. also the way you sing. And also my buddy, John Coward is someone who loves yeah. working with singers too. Not everybody, you know, can accompany yeah. and facilitate and also stretch when needed. He's just a mature mm -hmm. musician and, and um, he's a he really is. good arranger and composer too. So he's hearing you as the way we're hearing you with our producer hats on too, thinking, okay, how can we open this up so Sandra can, hmm. she can move this way or that way. She can choose whatever she hmm. wants. She has choices. I could, I could hear that. It's amazing how you could get a message like that without actually talking about it beforehand. Yeah. And yet it, it's happening and music is such a gift. I think God's given us such a gift that like you're saying, like faith creeps into it and then oh, yeah. collaboration and friendship creeps into it and it's all interconnected in a way. And and then even if someone's listening, hopefully that they're getting the message too, you know, that this all works together. In the, all the ways you've collaborated with different artists over the years, you probably have toured, you've been on so many different kinds of tours. Chick Korea's, I mean, is that the biggest touring piece No, that you've was had? 
Well, that was big for years, but actually consistently the Wayne Shorter Quartet was more of a chunk because that was 20 years of constant with that quartet. Chick was 10 years of really intensity. Mm-hmm. And I had I played in the trio with him a bit and with this quartet with Bob Berg and Gary Novak, that was a couple of years. But it was really 10 years with the electric band and the trio and the quartet. Then I left because I had to figure out what was going on. My first marriage was in a shambles. And I said, look, I have to go home and find mm-hmm. out whether anything can be salvaged of this or, or not. And being out here on the road a lot is not helping. Mm. Yeah. You know, that sort of resolved. And then uh, I sort of started doing my own stuff. I would still play with Wayne on and off too during that period. And then towards the late 90s, after uh, Sachi and I got married, Wayne started calling and saying, look, I want to do this thing and you want to come and play? I said, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So we had, starting in 2000, was around the time the the quartet started roughly, you know, 20 years. <laughs> so that was the most of one thing that I did. Yeah. yeah. I love that you kept coming back to your own work as an artist and that that was kind of paralleling with the collaborative projects, supporting that, and then continuing to do some of your own stuff. And Sachi, she's also a musician cellist, yes. right? Yes, so you guys really great. collaborate some and get to do some creative work together. She's on a bunch of my records. She's great. It's just an added, being able to collaborate together and the dynamics of, you know, work and life and creativity and just like family life, all these different things intersecting. Yeah, she's unbelievable. Many years ago, we had, you know, we had been through loss before we were able to have our two daughters. We had a miscarriage mm-hmm. and then a stillbirth full term. Mm-hmm. And um, we, there was a record of mine called One More Angel that came out after that. And I think at one point a singer wrote lyrics to it even. It's a very, you know, straightforward melodic song. A couple of years ago, we were asked by Jazz Night in America. We did a little duet, which we filmed at a bass shop up in Connecticut, Upton Bass, with candles around. It's really pretty. It was Mm. was on YouTube and and a lot of people seemed to enjoy it. But the music was underneath when they were listing all the musicians who had passed in the previous year. So it was a memorial. For us, it's a very powerful song because it's about the two that we lost. Yeah, personal. Yeah. yeah. But we had to do a version of it, just the two of us. You've had a lot of loss in the last year. Oh, my God. Just a lot of... I just think about all these markers. uh, Huge mentors. Even just the ones we've touched on today. Yeah. Yeah, Chick died two years ago. Wayne died in March. My mother-in-law died just in last November. Jim Keller just went. Uh, And a lot of other musicians, too, along the way. Yeah. But those are huge things to happen. mentioned just the way that that song was both personal and then became like shared in in, in a way do you think music has a way of helping us to grieve you know we're in nashville we've my husband and i are at covenant we've just been through a lot in the last little bit yes 
But what you're saying is like, there's this way that music can help us to kind of open up our grief, both personally and with one another. I just appreciate not only your musicianship, but how you think about all these things, like how you bring yourself fully to your work. And um, I mean, if there's anything that, like one of the takeaways from, from what it is to lose and then gain or struggle and then gain is that time is short. You know, and you, you're putting out so much music. There's so much creativity, you and your wife, both. I mean, just this sense of like, let's go for it. Let's do it. Let's make it count. And just grateful for all the beauty you've, you have brought to the world through your playing. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I'm looking forward to the next time we get to do something again. Because that yes. was fun. <laughs> let's do, I would love it. Well, we got it. We, you know, and um, God bless you guys. And I pray God's comfort and healing would be uh mm-hmm. upon your whole family and that's um yeah we could spend hours Thank talking you. about all that and uh, but but only god yeah. knows the way to heal that i mean i know yeah. how it's like to lose yeah. something and go through something with the babies sometimes people say things that are unintentionally hurtful even when they're mm-hmm. trying to say something yeah so um i yeah. pray that that god himself would meet you every day in this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it is, it's a unique um, thing to experience because there are so many varied experiences of it from people in the community and in the church and in the staff, and it has really touched on so many parts of our life. And I think it is a humbling thing to realize that that God can hold all of it and sometimes we do say like the like sometimes i feel like i say the wrong thing to the wrong friend who's experiencing it in a different way at a different time and that's messy when we're in community together kind of grieving like a mass casualty you know that that it's it's got all these layers and yet realizing god is big enough to hold all of it and so our vision of god has to grow to fit our experience of loss as it is more complex than we thought and um and he, and it, he is, you know. He, Even though we're crushed and, by it, you know. Yeah. So, thank you. Appreciate your prayers and and uh, encouragement around that. Yeah, and we look forward to to seeing you guys again and making some more music. You too. Yeah. That sounds great, John. I appreciate so much being able to connect today and just to continue to be inspired by your work and who you are and friendship and. Well, thank you. Yeah, grateful for you. All right. Take care. Deceitful man, oh, deliver us. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me?
The Slow Work is a production of Christianity Today. Executive produced by Mike Cosper. Produced by Azure Phelps. Edited and mixed by Dan Phelps. Original music by Tyler Chester. Graphic design by Chris Bennett. And I'm your host, Sandra McCracken. Thanks again for listening. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.